Well, we've been circulating a question uh, throughout our church in various mediums, uh, through social media and various outlets, asking people to answer the question, what does Easter mean for me? And another way of asking the question, what does Easter mean for me, is what is the relevance of the resurrection? Why does the resurrection of Jesus matter? Why is it relevant for every person in this room? And several disciples submitted answers to that question, and I want to share some of them with you. Some of the answers were, go like this. Easter means new life and new beginnings. Easter means grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Another, Easter means freedom. Another, Easter means the death of Jesus, the only person to have lived and not offend God. It means the miracle of Jesus coming back to life who is also the only person to have done that as well. It means the gift of forgiveness for all my offenses against God. Easter is a beautiful, beautiful thing. You see, when we say that Jesus rose from the grave, when we sing songs that, that bear witness to that truth, or when we voice it out loud in our faith, recognizing that that's the one part of the climax of the gospel, when we say that Jesus resurrected from the grave, we are making the most remarkable and we are making the most relevant claim in the entire universe. Not just relevant for this room, but relevant, I mean this, for the entire, entire universe. It's the most significant reality that we can come into contact with. It's the most significant reality that we can allow to lay claim on our lives and begin to affect us in deep, personal, meaningful ways. It is a remarkably relevant reality. And so I want to invite you tonight to grab your Bibles if you have one and turn open to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 to the passage that was just read for us a moment ago because 1 Corinthians chapter 15 deals with the relevance of the resurrection. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, know that every Bible comes with a table of contents. At the beginning of the Bible, you can look at the table of contents to find your way to the different books that make up the Bible and you're going to be looking for 1 Corinthians, which is located towards the back of the Bible. Now, when you get to 1 Corinthians and you find your way there, you're going to notice a couple of different kinds of numbers. One number, a few numbers are going to be kind of big and bold on the pages, and those numbers represent chapters. And so you're looking for chapter 15, a big, bold 15. And then after that, you're going to see a bunch of smaller numbers that are located next to the sentences in the Bible, and, and those represent what's called verses. And so chapters and verses, those numbers were added to the Bible to help people like us navigate this really big book. And so if you could, find your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and, and you can hang out, kind of hover around verse 12. We're going to be kind of giving a bird's eye view of this passage that was read for us a moment ago. And, and as you're doing that, one other point of note is that this letter called 1 Corinthians was, written to, uh, was named after the church it was written to. This was a church located in an ancient city called Corinth. Now, Corinth, interesting, interestingly enough, was a city in the ancient world that was a whole lot like our city here called Seattle. It was a port city where people were coming in and going out at a rapid pace, a center for commerce and trade and various sorts of things. It was a highly educated city, much like ours. It was a morally free-thinking and free-wheeling society, much like the city of Seattle that we find ourselves in. But then we can also say that the city of Corinth was, much like Seattle, a spiritually confused city. 
It was a spiritually confused city because it was a place that kind of, uh, it was a city, it was a culture that wanted to create space for every type of belief, belief and every type of behavior. And when you have a society where you're trying to create space for every belief and every behavior, those beliefs and behaviors kind of merge and melt into one another, and it can create various forms of innovation, various forms of spirituality. And so this was the city of Corinth, but yet there was a group of people living in that city who heard the gospel of Jesus, that he was crucified and that he was risen, and they believed the gospel. Their lives were changed by the gospel, and these people made up the church at Corinth, and this is the group that's receiving this letter. And Paul's writing this letter to them to help them learn how to flesh out the gospel in their faith. So they might discover the relevancy of all that Jesus did for them and the life they are living in the world that is. Now, one of, the th- where, one of the areas where their faith in Jesus was challenged most concerned the idea of resurrection. It concerned the idea of did Jesus rise physically from the grave? And there were a lot of people who were being tempted not to believe that. And they started to spiritualize the resurrection or mysticize the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus wasn't something historical. It wasn't something physical. And they began to talk about the resurrection in some strange terms. Oddly enough, this happens in our city as well. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, I received an invitation in the mail to attend an Easter celebration service at a place called the Center for Spiritual Living in our city. And this invitation was describing and trying to motivate me to come and and partake in in their service. And this is what they said. They said, we want you to come and celebrate the idea of resurrection. It read, join us for an experience of Easter as a mystical story, guiding us through any obstacle to reveal our highest self. Now, on that card where it says, uh, join us for a mystical celebration of the resurrection, when they describe the gospel in those terms, basically they're spiritualizing it. They're spiritualizing the resurrection and detaching it from being an actual, physical, historical event. And that gospel distortion was the same distortion that was present in the church at Corinth, which reminds us that the more things change, the more things stay the same. There's really nothing new under the sun. Ideas, truths, beliefs, worldviews, they they, they carry over from one generation to the next. The only thing that really changes is the branding is the contextualization of these various thoughts and views. And so this view that's as ancient as, first, as the first century, it is still circulating, circulating in our city today. And so what happens is people begin to say things like, and maybe you've been tempted to say this, well, Jesus resurrected in, in the sense that he lives on in the legacy of his followers, that his resurrection is tied to the legacy that is carried on in those who would trust in him and believe in him. But then there are others who would say things like, well, Jesus' resurrection is is true in the sense that Jesus lives on in the hearts of his people. And those ideas, they they sound good, they sound comforting, and, and they may be drawn upon for inspiration. They may be looked to to provide some form of sentiment in our understanding of what Jesus is all about. But understand that those Ideas, when we say those types of things, when we mysticize or spiritualize the resurrection, we, we find ourselves moving in a direction that may be comforting to us, but is ultimately irrelevant for us. And here's what I mean by that. If we say that Jesus lives on in the legacy of his followers, if we say that Jesus lives on in the hearts of his people, what we're saying is 
that Jesus was merely an inspirational teacher. He was merely a religious figure. When we say that, we are denying him being God and we are denying him from being the savior of the world. And when we deny him from being God or we deny him as the savior of the world, we create for ourselves a little cocoon from which to retreat from Jesus. And we can retreat from his claims. We can retreat from the authority that he has over us in this world. This is part of the reason why it's attractive. It's attractive to some of us to want to spiritualize the resurrection or mysticize the resurrection. C.S. Lewis would put it this way. He said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. If true, it is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. But spiritualizing the resurrection makes it moderately important at best. And when you step into 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you're going to find Paul combating that idea head on. And he's addressing it directly. As he says that the resurrection of Jesus isn't something to be drawn on for inspiration. It's not something to be drawn on for some sentimental memory. It's not what Jesus' resurrection is, is a historical event that has huge ramifications for every single person on the planet. And so I want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and identify uh, the relevancy of the resurrection in three somewhat simple ways. The first one is this. I want you to see the resurrection is relevant for all of our past. The resurrection of Jesus is relevant for our past. If you drop down to verse 17 of chapter 15, you'll see these words. It reads there, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Another way of saying that, if Jesus is not raised, then our sins remain unforgiven. An unforgiven sin is a huge problem. Because sin is what separates us from our creator. It's what prevents us from enjoying a joyful, peaceful, life-giving relationship with the creator of the universe. Paul would go on to say in verse 18, those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. He's referring to Christians who have died. Those who have fallen asleep, that's a euphemism for death, but they've fallen asleep in Christ, meaning they died believing in Jesus. But if Jesus isn't raised, they've perished. There's no hope for them because they died in their sins and they died with their sins being unforgiven. Now, when you think about the reality of sin, when it comes to the gospel, I believe sin is the easiest gospel truth to prove. It's the easiest tenet of the gospel for any of us to agree on because I believe deep down inside we all know that we're not right. We all know that there's things messed up within us. We all know that there's just something not right about the human condition. We all have skeletons in our closet. We all have things that we've done, things that we've said, things that we've thought that have shown love to no one but ourselves. We've all been there. We've all done that. We all have a conscience that nags us. We all have a conscience that torments us. We all have a conscience that condemns us and And it creates a host of problems. There was a psychologist who once said, I could dismiss all of my patients tomorrow if they could be assured of their forgiveness. I could dismiss all of my patients tomorrow if they could be assured of their forgiveness. There's no freedom for the unforgiven. Living in an unforgiven state is a miserable state to be in, which is why we try to escape it so much. When we feel like things aren't right in our lives, we do various things to try to cope with it. Some of us try to distract ourselves with various forms of entertainment. 
So rather than thinking about our condition, thinking about what's wrong with us, we just binge watch Netflix or we binge watch this, that, or the other to keep ourselves distracted from thinking deeply about who we are and what we are like. Others of us not, might not try to distract ourselves. Instead, we just medicate ourselves and we grab hold of various forms of food and various forms of drink, various forms of pills, something to kind of numb the senses so that we're not being swept up with thoughts of things not being right within us. And, and if we're not medicating ourselves, others of us just try to deceive ourselves and we deceive ourselves into thinking, well, sin's not really that serious being unforgiven isn't that big of a deal and we entertain that thought over and over and over again until one day we convince ourselves and, and that nagging sense of guilt just kind of shrinks a little bit and we try our best to snuff all of that out but when we are alone with just our thoughts, when the cable goes out, when the pantries are empty, and you're alone with yourself and you just think about who you are and what you are like, that's when that, that conscience begins to swell up once again and you're reminded that something's not right within you. You're reminded of the need to be forgiven. Now, I find it interesting when you read through the Gospels, the story of Jesus, you find Jesus oftentimes telling people your sins are forgiven. It was a bold move for Jesus to tell somebody your sins are forgiven. It was a bold move because the only one who can really forgive sins is the person who's been sinned against, right? So, for example, if after this service I walk up to you, introduce myself, and just punch you in the mouth, I've offended you, I've sinned against you, and you are the only one who can forgive me. Your spouse can't forgive me. Your friend who brought you here cannot forgive me. The only one who can forgive me is you because you are the one I've sinned against. Well, when it comes to our relationship with God, you got to understand that the only one who can forgive sins is the one who's been sinned against. And so when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, he's declaring himself to be God. He's setting himself apart from every other human being that has walked this earth. He's saying, look, I am the divine. I am the one you have sinned against. I am qualified alone to forgive you of your sins. And so Jesus was constantly telling people your sins are forgiven and because he was telling people his, their sins were forgiven, this riled up the religious leaders and is why the religious leaders sought to put him to death. Because they knew he was claiming to be God and to claim to be God was blasphemous and that's what drove him to the cross eventually. But it's interesting, the night before Jesus went to the cross, the night before he was arrested and tried and eventually crucified, he took his followers, his disciples, and he brought them into an upper room and he sat them down and he began to have a meal with them. He shared a, a meaningful moment with them at the dinner table, and, and he explains to them what's about to go down. And listen to what goes down in that conversation. It says, as they were eating, Jesus took a piece of bread, blessed, it, blessed and broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He's saying, my body and my blood is designed to secure the forgiveness of sins. It's to deal with the sin within a human heart. But then the question is, how do we know that Jesus wasn't just giving his disciples an empty promise? Because he could have gone to the cross and shed his blood, died, and, and they could have thought, oh, well, somehow that's supposed to forgive me. But how do you know for sure that what Jesus did on the cross would accomplish the forgiveness of sins? Well, the way you get to the answer of that is by looking to the resurrection. 
The resurrection of Jesus is what assures us that Jesus' death meant something. Because Jesus is risen, our sins are forgiven and they remain forgiven. The reason why the resurrection is relevant is because the resurrection assures us that what Jesus did on the cross changes us. It changes the relationship that we have with our God. Our sins are actually forgiven because Jesus is risen. Now, Christians like to say things sometimes where we we use a statement where we say, well, you know, Jesus, when he went to the cross, he paid the penalty for our sin. And so we talk about Jesus' death on the cross as some form of payment. And if that's true, if Jesus paid the penalty for our sin, then how do we know that that payment was accepted? Well, we know because, again, the resurrection you might think of it this way. You go to a store, you, you purchase something, you give money to someone at the cashier, and, and you're paying for whatever it is you're about to take home with you. And then the, the cashier turns and prints a receipt and hands it to you. And what does that receipt tell you? Well, that receipt tells you that your transaction is complete. Everything's good. You can go. Well, the death of Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. And the resurrection of Jesus is the receipt It assures us that the transaction is complete. All of our sin is forgiven. This makes the resurrection relevant for our past because it means every sin that we have ever committed and anyone that we will commit that will soon be a part of our past, it's all dealt with. That God's forgiveness is total. God's forgiveness is complete. Nothing is going to sneak up on God one day as it relates to sin in your life. You might think of it this way, God is not like Sprint. There are no hidden fees, right? When you get to God, and it's not something that's going to sneak up and be on your account that wasn't covered by the blood of Jesus. You are forgiven. You are free. The death of Jesus and his resurrection is sufficient for the forgiveness of all of our sins. So we want to consider this, and we want to celebrate this tonight. But not only is the resurrection relevant for our past, it's relevant for our present It's relevant for the life we're living right now. Check it, verse 14. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. Then again in verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. In other words, he's saying, if Jesus is not raised, then our faith is futile. That means everything we're doing right now is a waste of time. If Jesus isn't raised, there's no point in us being here today. If Jesus isn't raised, there's no point in us reading our Bibles. There's no point in us voicing prayers. There's no point in us singing songs. There's no point in us serving our neighbors. There's no point in us sharing the gospel. If Jesus is not raised, then our faith is futile. It means nothing. And everything we are doing is meaningless. We are wasting our time spinning our wheels if Jesus isn't alive. It's kind of like going to an old arcade and you step up to the arcade machine and you look on the screen and they have the the demo running through through and you see things happening on the screen and you don't have any coins. So you just like me as a kid, just start hitting the buttons, hoping something's going to happen. But without money, without coins, there's no energy. There's no power there. And so you're watching all this take place and you're hitting buttons, but it's just an exercise in futility. Nothing is happening. Well, Paul is saying if Jesus is not raised and our faith is worthless, then nothing's really happening in this moment. We're deceiving ourselves into thinking this time and in this space means anything if Jesus isn't risen. And so then you begin to think about, okay, if this is true, if following Jesus is a waste of time, it's a waste of talent, it's a waste of treasure, you begin to reason, okay, well, why would we deny ourselves anything? 
Self-denial is a silly way to live if Jesus is not alive. If Jesus isn't alive, I'm not going to deny myself. I'm going to indulge myself, right? Life is going to become all about me if Jesus is not risen. Paul says this. If you drop down to verse 32, we didn't read this one, but he said, he gets to this point and he says, let's just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Just indulge yourself. If Jesus isn't alive, do what you want, however you want. But if Jesus is alive, then something's got to change. If Jesus is risen, then something's got to change. Earlier in the beginning of the chapter in verse 3, Paul writes, For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He's saying since Jesus is raised, our faith is of first importance. It is of chief importance. Since Jesus is alive, he becomes the most important reality defining who we are and what we are doing with our lives in the here and now. Everything becomes about Jesus if he is risen. He becomes the sun in our solar system, so to speak, holding everything in orbit. And when you and I try to replace that sun with any other object, we know that their gravitational pull is too weak, and so everything flings apart. But when Jesus occupies central position, when he is of chief importance to us, then he starts pulling things together. He starts keeping things in harmony If Jesus is not raised, then our faith is futile. But if since Jesus is raised, our faith is of first importance. But then notice what else is said in verse 19. Paul says, if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. I think that's one of the most shocking verses in all of Scripture. He's saying, if we've put our our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. He's saying if Jesus is not raised, then our lives are to be pitied. Our lives are pitiful. Now, this might surprise some of you because maybe you've heard of a thing called Pascal's Wager. Pascal's Wager is named after a guy named Blaise Pascal, who's a French philosopher. And and he offered a line of reasoning to people to encourage them to live the Christian life, even if the Christian life is, is built on something false, even if Jesus isn't really risen. Listen to what he says. Hear his reasoning. He says, if you live your life as a Christian on earth and you later come to find out that Christianity is not true, then you won't have lost a lot because after all, you'll have lived a good moral life of serving and loving others. He said, but if you live your life as a non-Christian in this world and in eternity you discover that Christianity is indeed true, then you'll have lost everything and you'll spend all of eternity in hell. So when you play the chances, it's worth it. It's a lot wiser to be a Christian. Okay, think about what he's saying. He's saying that if you lived the Christian life only to find out in the end that it wasn't true, you would have still lived a worthy life, a good life. But if you hear what Paul is saying in verse 19, you're going to discover that Paul could not have disagreed more with that. Paul could not have disagreed more with that statement. He says such a life of following Jesus, of serving Jesus in this world, that type of life isn't to be praised. That type of life is pitiful if Christ isn't raised. That's what he's saying there. And he's saying this from personal experience because Paul suffered a lot trying to tell people that Jesus is risen. Everywhere he went, he was pushed back. He was oppressed. He was pressed in upon. He suffered much because of his mission and his ministry to Jesus. He suffered so much. He would even say, drop down to verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? I face death every day. 
Paul knew that if Jesus wasn't raised, then there was a much better way for him to live, an easier way for him to live, a life that would not have been nearly as challenging or difficult, a life that wouldn't have hurt so much. But because he believed Jesus was risen, he was willing to suffer. He was willing to endure hardships because he wanted the most people possible to come to believe in this life-changing reality, to find themselves swept up in relationship with God through faith in Jesus. Paul knew that since Jesus is raised, our lives have nothing to lose, that our lives aren't pitiful. Our lives are meaningful, and every time we move and lean in Jesus' direction, whether it's our time, our talents, our treasures, every time we push in that direction, we're doing something meaningful. We're doing something that counts. He would say this in the very final verse of chapter 15, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Nothing you do as a Christian serving Jesus is futile. None of it is in vain. It all matters. So we press on. We press on knowing that the resurrection of Jesus fills our lives with purpose and passion. It gives our life meaning, giving shape to the time that we spend in this world so that we can fill out our space and embrace the time that we are given in meaningful life-giving ways believing that we're free to serve others selflessly. We're free to love people in self-giving capacities. We are willing to go forth and to be a blessing to a world that may not bless us back. We do that because Christ is risen. We have nothing to lose. I love the testimony of Gary Hagen, who was the founder of the International Justice Mission. International Justice Mission is a Christian organization that tries to free people who are trapped in human trafficking and various things and when God called him to move in this direction and to make his life count for that purpose, he, he wrestled with it because of fear. He struggled with the calling. And listen to what he says. He said, I vividly remember when I finally had to make a decision to abandon my career at the U.S. Department of Justice to become the first employee of a not-for-profit organization that didn't yet actually exist called International Justice Mission. I had worked for three years with friends on the idea of IJM and was very excited in theory about this dream of following Jesus in the work of justice in the world. But then I had to actually act. I had to walk into the Department of Justice and turn in my badge. I tried to be very brave and very safe at the same time. That is to say, I walked in and asked my bosses for a year-long leave of absence. My bosses politely declined. He says, I was suddenly feeling very nervous. What was I really afraid of? As I thought about it, I feared, here it is, humiliation. If my little justice ministry idea didn't work, no one was going to die. If IJM turned out to be a bad idea and collapsed, my kids weren't going to starve. We'd probably just have to live with my parents for a while until I could find another job. But with my education, odds are I would soon find a job. The fact is, I would be terribly embarrassed. Having told everybody about my great idea, they would know that it was a bad idea or that I was a bad leader. Either way, it would be humiliating. And at that point, I discovered my boundary of fear. I sensed God inviting me to an extraordinary adventure of service, but deep inside, I was afraid of looking like a fool or a loser. This was actually very helpful to see because it helped me get past it. When I'm older, do I really want to look back and say, yeah, I sensed that God was calling me to lead a movement to bring rescue to people who needed an advocate in the world? But I was afraid of getting embarrassed, so I never even tried. Now, what's going to overcome his fear of failure? What's going to overcome his fear of being embarrassed? What's going to overcome his fear of humiliation? 
Well, it's the relevance of the resurrection that will overcome that fear. It's knowing that nothing I do in service to my God in light of the risen Savior, nothing I do is meaningless. I cannot fail. I have nothing to lose. That's what we embrace as Christians, and it actually sets us free to engage this world in a unique capacity. So that we're now willing to take risks and we're now willing to do things that God is calling us to do because ultimately we have nothing to lose. Let me ask you, is there a boundary keeping you from what God is calling you to do? A boundary that needs to be blasted by the resurrected Savior. Is there a boundary keeping you from doing what God is calling you to do? If you believe that Jesus is risen, what, are you, what do you fear losing? Do you fear losing your comfort, your career, your reputation, maybe even life itself? Well, if Jesus is risen, you have nothing to lose. You don't have to fear failure, embarrassment, or wasting your life. So let me ask you if you're a Christian, for those of you who do identify in this way and you believe in the risen Savior, ask yourself this question. Are you living a life that only makes sense if Jesus is alive? Are you living the kind of life that only makes sense if Jesus is alive? One that could be described as pitiful if he isn't risen, if he isn't alive. We want to consider these dynamics because this is the relevancy of the resurrection. He gives, it makes our, it matters to the lives we are living in the world that is. But then there's a third and final dynamic to this. The resurrection of Jesus is relevant for our past, our present, and then lastly, it's relevant for our future. I love this portion of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There's so much about this in this whole chapter. I would encourage you to read this whole chapter when you are able, but Notice verse 26, because verse 26 describes an enemy, talks about death in personified terms, and, and Paul describes death as an enemy, a final enemy that every person on the planet is going to face. You know this to be true. You've had loved ones die. You've had scares and brushes with death yourself, perhaps. You know that death is coming for everyone, everywhere. And when we begin to think about that reality, there's a few ways that we can respond to it. There are some who respond with a sense of nihilism. And they'll say, okay, if death is coming, then that renders life meaningless. Others respond with a sense of hedonism. And they say, well, if death is coming, then let's maximize our pleasures in the here and now. Let's go for broke, full tilt, whatever pleasure, whatever we desire, let's get it. Death is coming. Let's, let's enjoy ourselves now. But then there are others who respond with a sense of moralism. And they may reason, well, if death is coming, then maybe I can overcome it by being really good. Maybe I can be good enough to either delay death or even defeat death. But what Paul is saying in this chapter is that if Jesus is not raised, then death will defeat us. If he's not risen, death will defeat us. He's an enemy that's too big for us to handle. He's an enemy that none of us can shake. We stand no chance before him. And when we stand before death, it's going to be, the experience is going to be similar to what the people of Israel felt when they were standing before their enemy, a guy by the name of Goliath in the Old Testament. There's this moment where the people of God in the Old Testament are facing their enemy, and their enemy is known as the Philistines, and the Philistines had one warrior who fought for them, and he's known as Goliath. And you may have be familiar with this story, but Goliath was a big dude. He's considered a giant for many reasons. He stood nine feet Nine inches tall. Now, you might think somebody that tall would be kind of lanky and a gust of wind would just blow him away, but that's not Goliath. Not only was he really, really tall, he was bulky and strong. He was an anchored human being. We know this because when you think about how he's described, he had a helmet of bronze on his head 
And he was armed with a coat of metal that weighed 125 pounds. So his coat weighed 125 pounds. That was as much as most of the Israelites weighed at that time. This is a big guy. And in addition to having a heavy coat, he had bronze armor on his legs. And he carried a javelin flung across his back. And and he had a spear. And the head of that spear weighed 15 pounds. Just the tip of the spear weighed 15 pounds. Goliath was a mighty warrior. He was a daunting enemy. And when he went out onto the battlefield that day, he didn't even go, he didn't just go by himself. He had a shield bearer, somebody who carried a shield for him. And this shield bearer ran out in front of him and and carried a shield that was the size of an average man. And so when the people of God found themselves facing the Philistines, Goliath stepped up and he went out into the middle of the battlefield and he hollered at the people of Israel, said something like this. He said, I want you to send one man out to fight me if he and if he wins, we will become your slaves. But if I, if I win, if I defeat him, then you will become ours. And so everything was hinging on who could beat Goliath. It was a high-stakes battle against an enemy that was too big for the people of Israel to handle. So it says that when Goliath stepped up and he began to talk this way, the people of Israel shrunk back in fear. They were terrified and dismayed. Nobody wanted to go forward. It was a Jewish scholar by the name of Robert Alter who puts Goliath in perspective. Listen to what he says. He says, you never see these kinds of details on anyone. The reason is that this enemy is basically invincible. That's how he's being described. No one can defeat him. He's too big. His armor is too strong. His skill is too great. It will take an act of God to defeat him. And so the people of Israel shrinking back in fear because they're facing an enemy that they can't handle. But then comes this little shepherd boy named David. And David steps onto the scene and he reminds everyone, hey, you guys got to keep in mind that the battle belongs to God. And God's committed to fighting for his people. God's committing, committed to overcoming enemies that you can't overcome yourself. And so David runs out onto the battlefield. He faces Goliath and he defeats Goliath in a surprising, in a surprising way. And when he did, David's victory over Goliath in that moment transferred to the account of the Israelites. That victory is what might be called a vicarious victory. That all the people of Israel were victorious through the work of of David. Now you think about that when you come to Easter and you know that Jesus is referred to as the son of David. He is the greater David. He is the ultimate king. And when he stepped onto the scene of everything, he stepped onto the scene to face the one enemy that every human being has in common. The one enemy that is too big for any of us to handle, none of us can overcome. And yet Jesus would go to the cross and he would give up his life. Only when he died, he didn't stay dead. You know that Jesus stepped out of the tomb, and when he stepped out of the tomb, what was he doing? He was achieving victory for us. So that Jesus' resurrection transfers to our account. It is applied to us. His victory is our victory. Therefore, you come to this moment in, in this passage and you read, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory, the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Since Jesus is risen, death has been defeated for us. Our victory as Christians is a vicarious victory. We put our faith in Jesus and he does everything for us. He defeats death on our behalf. Therefore, the resurrection of Jesus becomes relevant for our future. Earlier this morning, you probably read the news and you know there was a series of coordinated bombings in Sri Lanka. 
bombings that were coordinated to fall on this day as Christians were gathering to celebrate the, res- the resurrection of Jesus. And these bombings wiped out three churches and three hotels. And the last count I received is about 207 people died, several hundreds more that were wounded. You read a story like that and you're thinking, okay, well, were those Christians wasting their time coming together to, to worship and to be together on Easter Sunday? You read a situation like that and you begin to think, okay, did death defeat all of those people who were worshiping Jesus and identifying with Jesus? And, and then you step into this passage and you realize the relevance of the resurrection. You begin to consider how those who died in Christ were not defeated because their sins were forgiven. Their sins were forgiven because Christ is risen. You know that the people who stepped into worship at that time and in that space together, they weren't wasting their time They were engaging in the most meaningful moment of their lives, worshiping the Savior. They were serving the Savior. They were all about the Savior. Suddenly, their lives became purposeful and passionate. It wasn't a waste of time. And so they're not to be pitied. They're to be praised, so to speak. We should celebrate the fact that they were worshiping Jesus and serving him together. But then you also know that their future Their future is changed because it's not going to be characterized by the death they experienced right now. Their future is one of resurrection. Their future is one of hope because Jesus is risen. Not a single Christian was defeated today. The relevancy of the resurrection matters. It's relevant for our past, our present, and our future. Now, there's one other final dilemma in this passage that that we need to identify just for a moment. And one final dilemma that arises if Jesus is not raised, and it goes something like this. If Jesus is not raised, then history is hopeless. If Jesus is not raised, then time is moving nowhere hopeful. History is Hopeless. Perhaps the biggest thing that sets various religions, worldviews, ideologies apart concern how we envision the future, where history is heading. And this is what sets us all apart. And there are some who, who see this and they don't think history is moving anywhere hopeful. A guy by the name of Bertrand Russell would take this attitude when he said, When I die, I believe that I shall rot, and that is the end. All the labors of the ages, the inspiration, the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction. The whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried in the debris of of a universe in ruins. That's a depressing outcome. That's a hopeless history. But then there are others who might not view, okay, well, time isn't really moving in a linear fashion like that. Time is moving more in a cyclical fashion. And this is an idea that's quite popular in our city. It's quite popular in our culture. And history is basically a hamster on a wheel. And it's moving, but it's not going anywhere. Sure, as it's creating energy, as it's moving in that way, over time, technology improves, knowledge improves, but some things never change, and that is the human condition. The human condition remains characterized by unforgiven sin. The human condition remains one characterized by being defeated by death over and over and over again. But when you come to the end of this passage and you drop into verse 23, Paul begins to talk about where history is heading from a Christian perspective. And he says this, he said, Christ, the first fruits, meaning when Jesus resurrected, he was giving us a picture of our future, saying he's the first fruits of the resurrection. You look to Jesus to see where history is heading. And what happened to him is going to happen to everyone who identifies with him. And then they go, he goes on. Afterward, at his coming, those who belong to Christ, meaning we will rise too, then comes the end when history is over. 
And notice, he says, when, he hands, when Jesus hands over the kingdom of God, the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and all power, in other words, what he is saying, and this is heavy, he's saying all of history is moving to a climax. He's saying because Jesus is risen, history becomes his story. All of a sudden, everything centers on Jesus. Everything will come to a climax in Jesus. He's going to return one day. And we're going to see how all of history becomes his story. It's all about Jesus. This is the reality of the resurrection. The resurrected Jesus will return. And when he does, those who have died in Christ will rise too. And we will be with him forever and always. When he comes, he's not coming as a suffering servant to die on a cross. He's coming as a victorious king who has defeated sin and Satan and death. He's going to bring history to an end and he will make all things new. There's going to come a moment where Jesus wipes away every tear from our eyes. There's going to come a moment when death is no more. There's going to come a moment where Jesus makes all things new. That's where history is heading because Jesus is risen. He is the first fruits of what is to come, so to speak. This makes the resurrection of Jesus the most relevant reality in all of the universe because it impacts every corner of the universe. Now, as we bring this to a close, I want to share with you one more response that was submitted to the question, what does Easter mean for me? And just be encouraged by these words. One of our disciples wrote, I wish I was perfect. I wish we all were perfect. If everyone was perfect, there would be no arguments, unkind words, selfishness, toddler tantrums, inadequacy, addiction, dissatisfaction, failures, jealousy, rage, revenge, pain, suffering, or death. If everyone was perfect, we would, be, we would not be disappointed by others or our situations or even ourselves. But then she asks, why do we desire perfection? Well, because God created us that way. God gave us a perfect world, perfect bodies, perfect work to do, and perfect unity with him. But we sinned and perfection was lost. And we now live apart from him and fight an imperfect world with imperfect hearts and imperfect minds. But she reminds us, Jesus came. He came and he died. And his death means that I no longer have a debt to pay. That Jesus' death means I no longer am chained to my imperfections. Jesus' death means I no longer have to sin. I can now choose to obey my God. Jesus' resurrection means I have perfection awaiting me in heaven. I will have a perfect home, a perfect body, and perfect fellowship with God. Jesus' death and resurrection means I have peace now and forever. Because I know perfection awaits me in the future. And if perfection awaits us in the future, we can have peace on earth right now. The resurrection of Jesus is incredibly relevant. It's relevant for our past. It means our sins are forgiven. It's relevant for our present, meaning our present is filled with purpose and passion. And it's relevant for our future because we know, yes, death may strike us in this world, but death cannot defeat us because Jesus is alive. That's the hope of the gospel. That's the relevancy of the resurrection. Let me pray for us.